Last week, we began back in John chapter 13 after taking a bit of a break. And uh, we looked just at verse one. This week, we're finally getting into the foot, uh, the foot washing, which is a, a beautiful passage. Now, uh, I mentioned this song probably a year ago in, a, in, a, in another sermon. I don't know if any of you were familiar with the um, well-known song of the 90s called What If God Was One of Us? It wasn't necessarily a Christian song. It was a very well-known pop song. And some of the lyrics said, what if God was one of us, just a slob like one of us, just a stranger on a bus trying to find his way home. And the main idea of the song, uh, written from a more of a secular perspective, was like, hey, wouldn't it be crazy if God was just like one of us? If God was just an average person? like just riding a bus, just trying to make his way home. And it's quite ironic because, of course, the, the, the theme that we've just been celebrating, the whole world has just been celebrating, um, whether they realize it or not, is, of course, that God did become one of us. He took on flesh in Jesus of Nazareth. God, who is eternal, who created everything, took on human flesh and lived just like one of us. In fact, he didn't just live like an average person. He actually stooped far below and lived a life of utter humility. He was mocked. He was spat upon. He was rejected all the way to a Roman cross where he died a horrific death. So God was one of us. In fact, God is in Jesus Christ uh, able, as we looked at last week, to sympathize with us because he was tried and tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. The marvelous thing about Christianity, that which sets it apart from every other religion and ideology in this world, is that actually God did become one of us and yet remains the eternal God who created everything. And in our passage today, we see Just as Jesus lived this life of humiliation, we see this um, utter humility in Jesus, both as he famously washes his disciples' feet here, but then we'll also see the humility in what that points to and what that is symbolic of in terms of how he has cleansed us from our sin. So this passage today and this act of Jesus washing feet is an incredibly significant act. It symbolizes the deep realities of what Christ has come to do. And then it gives uh, we as his disciples an example to follow. So we're going to read our passage and then we will look at it more closely. Beginning from verse 2 in John chapter 13 all the way to verse 17. This is God's word. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. 
Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you are right for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is God's word. Let's begin at verse 2. John sets the scene for us here. It is the supper. That is, they're about to take uh, likely the Passover meal, at least the supper in anticipation of the Passover and then the seven-day feast of unleavened bread. And as they're taking this, we read, When the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, and then it goes on to what Jesus knew. Now, just let's cross over this um, idea in verse two here. Next week, we will look more at the betrayal of Judas uh, betraying Jesus. So we're not going to cover it in too much detail. But notice here, there's quite some significant themes. Uh, the text says that the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot. Now, this doesn't mean that Judas, who we know betrayed Jesus, was an innocent pawn. He had evil intent. But what we clearly see is that there are demonic powers at play here to try and destroy the work of Jesus. And all I want to identify here is this wonderful contrast that we see. So on the one hand, we should see and recognize that there are indeed demonic powers at play here, as there are to this very day, especially in what Jesus as the Son of God was coming to do. There are satanic powers at play. But notice verse 3 gives this great contrast. So while we see that the devil is trying to destroy all things of Jesus, we read in verse three, Jesus knows that the father has given all things into his hands. All things leaves nothing outside of his power and authority. All authority in heaven and on earth is Jesus's. And so while the devil tries to destroy all things of Jesus, the reality is he's trying to destroy everything that Jesus has complete authority over. So it's a fool's errand to try and destroy the work of Jesus. So as Jesus enters, into deep, uh, enters deeper into this humility, as he is betrayed, as he is arrested, as he is mocked and spat upon, and, and as he is then led to the cross, what is astounding is that it is completely voluntary. There is no sense of Jesus being moved against his own will in the sense of some demonic power moving him to do what he doesn't want to do at any time. Jesus is very clear to say, I could bring 12 legions of angels to destroy all of you. It is a voluntary uh, submission, a voluntary laying down of his own life, which is utterly astounding. So before this voluntary act of humiliation on the cross, Jesus gives us another beautiful picture of humility with this meal uh, that he shares with his disciples. In verse four, we read, Jesus rises from the supper 
They would have been laying down at around a table. He gets up from his place. He lays aside his outer garments. He takes a towel, ties it around his waist. He pours water into a basin. He's on his hands and knees and he, he is washing the disciples' feet. Now, these are stinky, smelly feet. They were dusty roads. It would have been quite a, for lack of a better term, gross thing to do. Now, what we should understand is that this act of foot washing isn't necessarily the um, uh, humble thing in and of itself. For this act of foot washing was done many times. It was custom uh, that a guest would come to the house. And because it was very dusty roads, they would then have their feet washed, usually by a servant. Um, or perhaps a lower member of the household, but never, ever would you have the head of the household, someone of significant status, washing the feet of someone who is in an inferior or insignificant place. And so this is the significance. This is where we see the humility. It is because of the height of the status of Christ who then lowers himself to take on a task that is lowly by nature. It's because of the great chasm between his height as the Lord of glory, as the one who is sovereign over all, that is astounding to us that he would then stoop so low to wash dirty, stinky feet. It's kind of like someone of such significant status in our day. Let's say the prime minister, Anthony Albanese, he's getting ready for a meeting, national cabinet, talking about whatever they want to talk about. And let's say the cleaner has decided to have a day off. And who knows what these parliamentarians get up to. The office is filthy. And uh, Albanese comes into his office and he decides we need this meeting. It's filthy. I'm just going to clean it myself. I'm going to spend two hours cleaning this room, making sure it's spick and span so that when everyone comes, uh, it'll be nice and clean for us to have the meeting. Now, cleaning an office isn't such a significant thing. That's, we, we do it all the time. We clean our houses. But someone like the Prime Minister of Australia, who has a lot of things to do, it's unthinkable to think that he would, of his own accord, clean that office. Likely what would happen is he would put in some calls, get some people in here to clean the office. See, it's the great gap between the height of the status of the one who is then doing such a lowly act. And notice as well that in this passage here, as Jesus gets up to wash the feet, it's already halfway through the supper. Now, what would happen if you were going to wash feet? You would do it before the supper even begins. And it's not like from our passage, the disciples volunteered to wash feet. They weren't going to do that. You wouldn't do peer-to-peer washing of feet. It was always someone who was more significant washing the feet of someone, um, sorry, someone less significant washing the feet of someone who is more significant. So the disciples certainly didn't want to do that. We'll see that they were actually arguing about who was greatest. And so Jesus, while the disciples, we get this from Luke's account, are arguing at this meal about who's going to be the greatest, Jesus, as the greatest of all, bar no one, gets up from his place. He gets down on his hands and knees and he takes uh, the task of a lowly slave. And now as Jesus comes to Simon Peter, here is where we see 
the, the, the best insight into what Jesus is doing here. So let's look at the interaction that Jesus has with Simon Peter. Then we're going to see the symbolism of the act of foot washing. And then we're going to finish with the example that Jesus gives. So in verse six, Jesus comes to Peter who says, Lord, do you wash my feet? It's him, of course, saying, what are you doing? This is crazy. You're not going to wash my feet. Jesus says, what I am doing, you do not understand, but afterward you will understand. Now, Peter shows that he doesn't understand, of course, because in his uh, characteristic, impulsive manner, he says here, you shall never wash my feet. Now, we don't get the full strength of this in the English translation. In the original language, it's literally Peter saying, you will never, ever wash my feet into eternity. Like him saying, you will never, ever wash my feet in a million years. Never. It's never going to happen, Lord. Now, surely we can partly understand Peter's response here. I mean, the thought of someone you revere, the thought of someone so significant doing something so lowly. There's almost like a noble response in Peter that we can put, perhaps recognize. He doesn't want his master to do something that would be improper for a master to do. He doesn't want his master to stoop so low. But on another level, Peter's response actually reveals that he is still thinking in a very worldly way. He's still thinking in a way that is not a heavenly way to think, but rather in a worldly perspective. It's just the same as when Peter rebuked Jesus. Remember when Jesus revealed to the disciples that the Messiah was going to have to suffer and die. And Peter took Jesus aside and actually rebuked him. And said, you, you, that's not what a Messiah does. Don't think that way. And Jesus ends up having to rebuke Peter and says, you're thinking of the things of men and not the things of God. You're not thinking in a right way, Peter. See, from a worldly perspective, it didn't make sense for a rising leader like Jesus to suffer and die. That didn't make sense to Peter. And from a worldly perspective, it doesn't make sense for someone of such significant status to do something that would seem improper for that person. It just doesn't make sense. So Peter rejects wholeheartedly the idea of Jesus washing his feet. And surely another reason, if I can just identify another reason, we can perhaps understand why Peter resists Jesus washing his feet is that it actually requires a lot of humility and vulnerability to let someone wash your feet. Imagine like right now, if I just decided and said to all of you, I'm going to wash your feet. I want you to take your shoes off and everyone's going to watch you while I wash your feet. That's a really vulnerable place. I mean, everyone has to look at your feet. Feet are not the most attractive thing. And we're, we have clean feet. Imagine if they're filthy and everyone's watching you. It actually requires a level of vulnerability to then let someone, okay, wash my feet. Everyone's going to watch me. It's a vulnerable position to be. And here is a sharp lesson for the natural pride that exists in all people. This is why so many resist the gospel of Jesus Christ, because the gospel places us in a really vulnerable position, as we have looked at over the last couple of weeks. The good news is good news because there's bad news. The bad news is that we are all desperately sick. We are all permanently stained by sin. And it's our sin, not the result of our environment, but rather it is our sin that has caused us to be rebellious against God. And there's nothing we can do about it 
it. And our only hope is for a merciful savior to have pity upon us. Now that's a vulnerable place to be. Our natural pride wants to be able to do something to get us out of that place. So it requires a lot of vulnerability to actually allow someone to cleanse you in the way that Christ does. The spiritual cleansing that Christ offers that we will see comes only to those who in utter humility recognize their desperate need for cleansing. I mean, recognize that they are a wretched sinner who are desperate for someone to cleanse them and who therefore lose every sense of self-regard. I mean, there's no clinging to any dignity because you don't have any. There's just an utter abandonment of every sense of self-regard so that you may come to receive this cleansing that Christ alone offers. Every attempt to cling to any form of worthiness within yourself must be completely abandoned. Now notice what it takes for Peter to do a complete 180 in the space of a few seconds. Midway through verse eight, Jesus says, Peter, if I do not wash you, you will have no share in me. You have no part in me. And suddenly Peter goes from, you will never, ever, ever wash my feet to just wash everything, Lord. Shower it over me, my head and my hands, everything. I mean, he didn't want people to witness him washing, uh, having his feet washed. Now he's ready for everything. And it's a wonderful sign of a godly heart. See, there are two hearts that we see here. Initially, Peter displays that natural pride that we all have, that natural, hard, rebellious heart that is unwilling to be vulnerable. But then after a few words from Christ, we see this godly desperation to cling to Christ. I mean, a desperation and this is the sign of a godly heart. At the threat of separation from Christ, Peter loses every bit of pride he might have had. And in utter humility, he begs in front of everyone for Christ to cleanse him wholly and completely. This is the sign of a godly heart. Whether you are a mature believer or whether you are not a believer, or maybe you are coming to believe, the sign of a godly heart is to hear that threat of separation from Christ and then to abandon every sense of self-regard and cling to Christ. Mature believers hear the warnings of ongoing sin. We who have been walking with the Lord for decades, maybe still hear the warnings of ongoing sin, of laziness, of lust, of loose living. And we hear those warnings come to us and it strikes us like a knife to the heart with a godly fear. And we then have a desire to put to death those sins. And that is the, the sign of a godly heart. Unbelievers who would not say that they believe in Jesus Christ, all of a sudden, by the sovereign grace of God, hear the call of Christ to be washed by him or have no part in him, and they hear that threat, and all of a sudden, the pride that they once had is gone, and in abandonment of every sense of self-worth and self-regard, they cling to Christ. They come running to the Lord Jesus. We see that heart in Peter as he desperately clings to Christ after this threat of separation. Now, as we move on in verse 10, Jesus comforts Peter. He, he explains, no, no, no. The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. Now, here we get to the symbolism of what's going on here. 
The one who is bathed does not need to wash. If I can just get a little bit technical, not too technical, but if I can just identify, there's clearly two words going on here, bathed and wash, that in the original language, they are different words, and we can clearly see that come through our translation. But they're two words that on surface level, bathing and washing are basically the same thing, right? On surface level, they're the same thing, but they're fundamentally different here. They're very different in what's happening. The second word that we have in all translations as wash, that's a more common word that's used at least 30 times through the New Testament. The first word where Jesus says the one who has bathed is used only four times, only a handful of times. One example is in Hebrews 10, 22, where the writer says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now that's talking about the work of Christ on the cross, his complete work of redemption and his blood that was shed. Should we bathe in that spiritually is enough to cleanse us entirely. The one who is bathed in that sense, it's linked to those who have been born again. To make it even clearer, the noun form of that word is used in Titus 3.5, where Paul says, by the washing of regeneration. Regeneration is being born from above, born again. So this first word, that of bathing, that Jesus talks about here, is to do with his once and for all sacrifice on the cross, where his blood is so unimaginably pure that it can cleanse the greatest of sins and the greatest of sinners entirely so that those who are born again to trust in Jesus Christ are cleansed. They don't need a second salvation experience. They don't need anything else. That is a complete work of redemption, right? In terms of how we are reconciled to God, in terms of how wretched sinners are all of a sudden cleansed of that and reconciled with God through the work of Jesus Christ. That's a once and for all act of redemption. They have been washed by me, Jesus says. They, they have my very righteousness. I keep them safe. That's those who have been bathed. Now, for those who have bathed, for those who have been cleansed, there is a second washing. Now, this is the second word that we see here. The idea of washing feet. And I believe this is symbolic of the ongoing duty that followers of Jesus have to put to death sin, to put to death all of the aspects of their life that would dishonor the name of Jesus Christ, that would be hypocritical of them to engage in, for they are not consistent with the life that Jesus Christ desires that we live. So those who have been washed by the blood of Christ now have a responsibility to live a life consistently with that reality. It's like we have this objective reality. This first bathing is like our objective reality that those who have trusted in Jesus Christ are objectively justified. That is to say, the truth is they are washed and cleansed and made right with God and no one ever takes that away because it is the sovereign work of God. And so the one who began that work in all of us will bring it to completion. And that's our assurance. That's objectively true. Now, then there is this subjective life where we sin. 
We slip into sinful habits. We do, to be honest, really stupid things some of the time. We don't want to. And the goal of the Christian life is to make this subjective reality where we are ongoingly washed. That is to say, where we put to death sin. We recognize there are sinful habits in our life. We recognize that our tongue has gotten a little bit loose and we've been using careless words. We recognize that our eyes have started to get a little bit loose and we've been lusting over particular things, whether women or men or money. We've been coveting things and we then feel conviction and we want to wash ourselves of that and put that to death. And the goal of the Christian life is to make this subjective reality more and more aligned to this objective reality of who we are in Christ. The objective reality is the truth of who we are. We are supposed to make our lives more and more consistent with that truth, that we are washed and we are cleansed and we are spotless in the eyes of our Father because of the work of Jesus Christ. And those who have been bathed desire then to wash themselves again and again and again until that day where in the end, God will bring about a complete act of redemption and in the twinkling of an eye, we will be transformed. But our goal, while we still have breath in our lungs, this side of heaven, is to make our life a holy life more and more consistent with that reality of those who have been bathed. Now, one of the great problems that people have is when they confuse those two washings. When they confuse the objective with the subjective, when they confuse what bathing means with what this washing here is. Some people try so desperately in this life to cleanse themselves by doing this washing of feet. So they try and put to death sin in their life. They try and be a better person. They try and give more charitably. And they're all doing it to try to achieve this objective reality that no washing that we can do can ever achieve. There is no cleansing available through our own methods that can remove the stain of sin. There are not enough good deeds in the world that every Mother Teresa combined could do to remove the guilt, the stain of guilt because of our rebellion against God. Jesus says, unless I wash you, You have no share. You can't wash yourself. Unless I wash you, you have no share in me. Unless Christ washes you the way he desires, you have no part in him. There is no partial washing. It's not as if Jesus hands out some soap and shower gel and says, have a good wash, do this three times a day, you'll be all right. No, unless Jesus washes you, unless you put yourself in that vulnerable place, that place where you abandon every sense of self-worth, where you abandon every sense of self-regard and you allow Christ to cleanse you completely. Either his blood washes you wholly and completely with nothing added by you at all, or you have no share in him. Now, what is required to receive this complete washing? What is required to receive this washing? You must die to yourself. Of course, you must believe in Jesus Christ and in believing is you dying to yourself. You die to your natural desires. You die to any belief that you have any sense of acceptance or anything to merit God's favor, any sense of worth before God. You die to that. You come with empty hands. You come in filthy garments like a beggar 
before the king of kings and you receive his cleansing so that those filthy garments may be taken off and you may receive a robe of righteousness by being brought into the very presence of Christ. Christ cleanses us by calling us to die to ourselves and find life in him. And what a wonderful reality about the gospel of Jesus Christ that he does not call us to anything that he has not perfectly modeled in his own life. He does not call us to die to ourselves as someone who never died to himself. Jesus took up his cross literally. He calls us to die to ourselves as the one who truly died to himself and what humiliating circumstances his death was. Here is, if I might just add another layer of symbolism to this, not only is this act of Jesus washing feet symbolic of his cleansing work, but it is also symbolic of the means by which we would be cleansed. It's not only symbolic of how we are cleansed, but, but it's symbolic of how Jesus would then cleanse us, namely a great humiliation must occur for cleansing to come. Remember how lowly of a task this was. Peter was just shocked that Jesus would do something so humble, so humiliating to wash feet. We saw this in John chapter 9 where Jesus healed the blind man. Remember that story where he spat in, the, in the, the dirt and made mud out of his saliva and then wiped it over the face of the blind man. And spit was always seen in Jewish culture as something grotesque and shameful. It was always related to that. And the cross, likewise, was seen as such a shameful thing. This is why Peter couldn't understand why Jesus was going to then suffer and die because for a Messiah... But that's, uh, that's a loss. That's humiliating. That can't be what the Messiah would do. See, the picture, of course, for John 9 of Jesus healing the blind man and that which we see here in Jesus washing the disciples' feet is that through shame and humiliation of our Savior, cleansing would come. It is through the humiliation of Christ our Savior. We see that here in this task of utter humiliation. And here in this humble act of foot washing, we actually see the beautiful pattern uh, through the gospel in the life of Jesus, where he leaves, you might say, the riches of heaven to then lower himself to the form of a servant to become obedient to the death of the cross, to then be humiliated and then return to his rightful place as heir of all things, his rightful place of King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's this beautiful picture of the heights, the heights of status that Jesus has, and then voluntarily lowering himself to enter into this world in humiliating circumstances, born in a manger, living a life of loneliness, a life of rejection, all the way to the humiliation of the cross. And then when he accomplishes his work of redemption, he returns right back to that place of superiority. And we actually see this, if we just take a, 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 perhaps a step back and look at this story, we see a bit of a picture of that. Jesus begins in this story at his rightful place at the table where he was sitting there, where eyes would have been on him. He's the rabbi. And what does he do? He lowers himself from that position. He gets on his hands and his knees. He washes his disciples' feet, undertakes a task of humiliation. And then we read in verse 12, he resumes his place at the table. 
It's this beautiful picture of the condescension of our God lowering himself down, completing his work of humiliation, and then returning to his rightful place at the table where all eyes were back on him. No other lowercase g God, no other revolutionary, no other person or deity in all of humanity has ever been able to follow this picture of being so high and supreme to then lower themselves to such humiliation, all the while returning and redeeming that place of utter superiority and supremacy over everyone and everything. Now, as Jesus resumes his place, as we come to an end in verse 12, he then asks them, do you understand what I have done to you? After he's just washed all of their feet. Here is where we finish with the example that we must follow. And this will be uh, briefer. Jesus says in verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. So there is very clearly a desire here that Jesus has, not simply to see the symbolism. Let's not remain abstract and and, and just see the symbolism. Let's definitely see the symbolism. Let's bask in the beauty of that. But let's then recognize the example that Jesus is about to give. So let's finish with three aspects of this example that we are to follow. And I want to give just some questions of reflection for each to help us apply this to ourselves. So firstly, notice that this is an example in humble service. I mean, really humble service. Jesus says in verse 16, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. This is clearly Jesus saying, Nothing should ever be beneath you. Nothing short of sin should ever be beneath you. Don't you ever assume that anything is beneath you, you who wish to follow me, Jesus Christ. He's saying, if I, as the creator of the universe, if I, as king of kings and lord of lords, the one who has all authority, can wash your dirty, stinky feet, much more than that, can go to the cross and suffer humiliation, then you can likewise follow this path. Nothing should be beneath you. We miss the point if, as some do, we just once a year try and copy this act and wash people's feet and then return to our lives of luxury and selfishness after that. The point of this is, of course, about a posture of humble service in all of our lives. It's about... Uh, a, con- a constant approach which sees nothing as beneath you and which desires to serve others and recognize them as more significant than your very self. So a few questions to ask. Is it beneath you to perhaps drive an hour out of your way to pick up another person who desires to come to church, maybe someone who's not all that significant. Lord willing, we never have any sense of popularity in this church, but inevitably sometimes it happens. Perhaps there's another church member who is more quiet. Let's be honest, the hour drive is going to be a bit difficult. There's not going to be much conversation. And does it seem beneath you to have to inconvenience yourself on a Sunday to drive an hour out of your way to pick up that brother or sister and take them to church? 
Or are you the type of person perhaps to reap the benefits of everyone else's hospitality, to reap the benefits of everyone else's service without ever having a desire yourself to serve others? See, if you feel like certain things are beneath you, or if you have no desire to serve those around you, then there is good reason to legitimately question your salvation. There is good reason to question whether you have been washed. The scriptures tell us to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. There is good reason if there is no desire to to serve and help others, or if there are things that seem beneath you because you're too significant. The example that Jesus gives here is to say, you probably don't have a part with him. You probably have not been washed. Secondly, after an example in humble service, it is an example in impartiality. Notice here, this is the astounding thing. There is no indication that Jesus skipped any of his disciples, which means he washed the feet of Judas, who was going to betray him. He washed the feet of the one who would then, as we read in verse 18, would lift his heel against him. That is to say, who would betray him, who would hand him over. And Jesus knew this. And he lowered himself, he washed his feet, he shared intimate fellowship with him. I think this is astounding because remember, Jesus spoke about loving your enemies. He said, if you love those who love you, that's what anyone does. There's nothing special about that. You need to love your enemies. You need to bless those who curse you. You need to pray for those who abuse you. How radical was this teaching of Jesus? And then how radical was it that the disciples, right before their master goes to the cross, they then see this perfect example where Jesus genuinely loves his enemies by washing the feet of Judas, by sharing intimate fellowship with him. And we are to show the same impartiality when it comes to our own lives in the sense of anyone's status or ethnicity or gender or whatever it is, we do not show greater or lesser love based upon things. Rather, we love with impartiality. We see in Christ this level of impartiality where he, he actually loves his enemies. And then he calls us to follow the example of him who loved his enemies, much more than that, loved us while we were rebellious and hostile in our minds toward him. So a few questions. Do you extend hospitality simply to those who you naturally enjoy the company of? I've spoken about this many times before that by definition, hospitality is loving strangers. It has nothing to do with lavish parties where you just invite friends around. That's not hospitable. Hospitality has an impartiality to it. There's a sense of um, desiring to simply bring people, whoever they are, into your lives and make them feel loved. And so do you do that in your lives? Those in the workplace or even those at school, are you impartial Or are you partial with the particular people you associate with? Do you take like the long way to get to the toilet because you know there's someone there who you really don't want to talk to. So you're willing to take an extra five minutes out of your way just so you don't have to talk to that person. Is there a level of partiality in your life? Christ has left us with the ultimate example of impartiality that we are to follow. And finally, our last example. It is an example in responsibility. Jesus finishes by saying, blessed are you if you do them. 
He doesn't say, blessed are you because you've seen this or blessed are you if perhaps every now and then you'd like to try doing this. Blessed are you if you do them, if you make a practice of this, if it is habitual. We saw how Jesus kept his word about no impartiality, for he spoke about blessing your enemies, loving them, and he himself did that. He loved his enemies. And then he calls his followers, he calls you and I to put our money where our mouth is, to practice what we preach and live as genuine followers of Jesus Christ. And so this means taking responsibility to live in a way that honors Christ. It means taking responsibility to live with integrity. Words are cheap. Professions of faith are cheap. They don't really mean anything unless it is backed up by fruit that demonstrates that that profession is genuine. As John says in 1 John 3, 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So a simple question, do you practice what the Bible preaches? Do you live by this example? Does your yes mean a yes? Or are you careless with your words and commitments? Are you living in hypocrisy where you're professing to follow Jesus Christ and yet your life reflects nothing of the sort? Now is the time to receive that cleansing that Christ alone offers. Now is the time to abandon every sense of self-regard, every sense of um, an idea that you can just fix this of your own because it would be really vulnerable to admit to someone that you don't think you're actually a Christian, even though everyone thinks you're a Christian. Now is the day to receive the cleansing from Jesus Christ. So let us live with integrity. Let us take responsibility of the grace that we have received and honor the Lord Jesus Christ through a life of following his example. Here is where we see how these two washings are really held together. So let's hear the weight of the responsibility we have to follow this example. But let's not allow it to turn into that idea that you can somehow do that in order to achieve the washing that only Christ gives. Let's keep these together. So we need to hold this bathing and this washing together. We cleanse ourselves from selfishness. So this is the second washing. This is this idea of cleansing ourselves of ongoing responsibility. We must cleanse ourselves from the selfishness that we are prone to by living selflessly. We must actually take responsibility and live with selflessness. We cleanse ourselves from hypocrisy by being intentional to mean what we say and say what we mean. We actually need to do those things. We desire to follow this example because this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple is to follow his example. But here's the thing we fall back on. We're doing all of this because we have been bathed in Christ. We're doing all of this because he has washed us. We're not doing it to earn his love. We're doing it because we've received his love. We are sinners who have come under that fountain of blood where it has cleansed us from our guilty stains. We have washed in that. We rejoice in that, that we as people who are far off, as people who are wretched sinners, can actually be completely cleansed by the blood of Christ. And that basking in that is the empowerment to live a life that looks more and more like Christ, that looks more and more like the example that Jesus has given, because we know 
that he has cleansed us.